Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. Welcome back to another episode of DC Power Hour. Thanks for joining us. And we've got the Battery Blarney Duo back ready to discuss a very important topic, how to properly charge a stationary battery. And uh, let me turn it over to those guys because, Alan, tell us why this is an important topic. Why are we going to talk about this today? Well, good morning, all. Uh, it's a topic very close to my heart. And one of the main reasons is that uh, with previous companies, particularly my last company before I retired, I found I was responsible for all the warranty claims that were coming into the company. And we were a, a battery neutral vendor. In other words, we used batteries from many, many manufacturers. But one thing I found in common with warranty claims is that over 50% of them, the paperwork that accompanied them, showed the batteries were not being properly charged. Uh, several reasons for this, which, we, which we'll discuss further. But, uh, you know, if you don't charge a battery properly, you're killing it. If you're undercharging it, you'll end up sulfating the battery. If you're overcharging it, uh, all sorts of nasty things can happen, uh, including thermal runaway. Uh, but you're certainly going to uh, shorten the battery life either way. So we'll discuss all those aspects. Like to see what George, George thinks of what I've just said, and uh, where we go forward from that. Well, Alan, it's um, you know the, the, you said it was a, a pet subject of yours. I think that's uh, probably an understatement, to be honest. In all the years I've known you, you've been passionate about the subject of battery charging. In fact, I, I believe is it not correct that uh, while you were at your last company, the uh, the salespeople knew you as you know Doctor No because that was your standard answer to any warranty claim. Not every warranty claim, George, but I did get that nickname. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was because on examining warranty claims, I just found out, well, how, why can you warrant a product that's not been used properly? You know, you're going to, if you have a car, you're not going to, the manufacturer is not going to honor the warranty if you're not using it properly, if you're not changing the oil, if you're using the wrong gas. Et cetera, et cetera. So the battery's the same. So warranty, uh, the warranty aside, to get the most out of a battery, uh, it has to be charged properly, not just when it's in use, but from when it's uh, uh, stored and when it's put into service. So battery comes out of the manufacturer's plants, sometimes 100% charged, usually about 95% charged. So then it goes from there into a warehouse usually. Well, the whole, all the time it's sitting, not connected to a charger, it is self-discharging. So somewhere in that storage life, you've got to get, into get it into service quickly. And the IEEE says uh, for lead calcium product, uh, the maximum storage time should be around six months uh, for Antimony, low antimony, selenium product is much shorter, about three months. So when that battery's in storage, and if you go into that six months, say assuming it's a calcium battery, and you go into that six months time frame in storage, you got to give that battery a freshening charge. So that's where the charging starts. If you're putting it into service within that storage time limit, then you still have to give it a freshening charge when it's put in service. And this is where most things start to go wrong. Uh, take a typical build-out, cellular build-out, which you and I were both involved heavily with, George. What happens when the battery's put in service, depending on whether it's a flooded cell or a vented, red, uh, vented uh, or valve-regulated lead acid, the manufacturer recommends, and the manufacturer states that the battery should be given a freshening charge. All too often what happens is that uh, the battery's installed, charger switched on, Technician looks and says the battery's been charged properly, and he just leaves it there. He hasn't followed the instructions of the manufacturer to give it a freshening charge. So that's where things start to go wrong. So, uh, George, you want to take it from there? 
Well, I'll take it from there, but I'll take it from a slightly different perspective. I think part of the problem we have is actually the uh, lack of education. The technician you're talking about didn't actually understand why he was doing or she was doing what they were doing. It's something that has become very aware to me is that this is a big part of our problem with a lot of the maintenance problems is that um, corporate training as such teaches people how to do something. What it doesn't teach them is why they're doing it. Basically, education in any form comes in two versions. You've got to educate the people, and then you can tell them they how to know how to do something. And I think that's the biggest problem we have at the present moment is people have been asked to do things and they don't understand why they're doing them. And I think the same applies all the way through in many cases. And when we talk to our guests later on, we'll ask them. But um, I, I, I've had it said to me when i uh, looking at a UPS battery on a site and telling the technician that uh, she needed to adjust the charging voltage because the particular cells they were using had a different site, a slightly different voltage, and the, the current, the, basically, the UPS was set at the high level of uh, using uh, 2.25 as the as the charging voltage, and this was wrong for that particular cell. And I was informed that she couldn't do that because the um, basically her manager had said to her and said to all the technicians was that he wasn't bothered about all these different voltages that people talked about. They were all going to be set to this because all batteries are the same. So the best I could do was actually to get her to bring it down to the midpoint, which at least was uh, it was it was at least within the tolerance of the battery. But I think that's that's where we have, a lot of the problems that we have is this uh, lack of understanding at all levels. You're right, George. Let's look at the charging voltage. Why a particular charging voltage? Well, as I said previously, you know, a battery self discharges. So even when it's uh, in use, you have to charge it at a slightly higher voltage than the normal open circuit voltage of that battery. The open circuit voltage depends upon the specific gravity of the electrolyte in that battery. And as you well know, the electrolyte specific gravity can change. Uh, normally, flooded cell is usually pretty standard of 1.215 or 1.250, but with valve rate, regulated lead acid cells, it changes as people keep, uh, the manufacturers try to increase the specific gravity of the electrolyte uh, to give them a higher density, uh, energy density ratio. So sometimes you don't really know what the specific gravity of the electrolyte in that cell is. So why is the specific gravity important? Well, to calculate the open circuit voltage of a battery is relatively easy. You've got to know a magic number. And that magic number is 0.845. So if you take the specific gravity of the electrolyte in that particular battery and add 0.845, that will give you the open circuit voltage of the battery. As I said previously, uh, there's some natural losses within a battery. So what you've got to do is you've got to charge that battery at slightly above the open circuit voltage, in which case roughly works out about 120 to 140 millivolt. So you've got to add that to the open circuit voltage in the battery, and there you have your float charge volt. So as, as I said, it's all dependent on the specific gravity of the battery. So all batteries are not equal. All batteries have different specific gravities. Therefore, they have a different charging voltage. The big problem is that UPS manufacturers and uh, DC charging equipment manufacturers rely on this 2.25 volts per cell. And the equipment comes out of the factory set at 2.25 volts per cell. It's put into service and nobody changes that volt. It could be lower, it could be higher, but uh, that, that needs to be done. That needs to be taken into consideration. So as you George, you know, all batteries are not equal. And you're right in education is a big thing, but uh, I don't know how we get them to do that. So maybe that's your expertise, George. You're the you're the professor, you're the educator, so let me what you think. Tell me what you think. As I said earlier, I think that the, the, the whole subject is this thing about we're not doing the right type of education at the present moment. We're, we're instructing, we're telling people how to do things. And this is, this is not something that's just coming off the top of my head. 
this is what I'm seeing from after six years of uh, of teaching batteries out in the field and uh, and on this virtual training we're doing now, is that um, a lot of times the students simply, even the ones that are doing maintenance, when I start to talk to them about what the readings mean and stuff like that, their answer comes back is, well, we're not involved in that. We just take the readings and we send them to somebody else to look at. There's a subject matter expert that does. And I sort of say, well, you know, with due respect, you are the person that's standing in front of that battery. You're the person that's got the visual inspection of it. You're the person standing in charge of the charger. All these things, they're all part of it. And it's that is part of the doing the maintenance. You're doing the initial assessment of the battery. Yeah, if you get very detailed information, a subject matter expert might be able to do some more analysis on it, but you are the first line. And if that person, you know, did that person come and do the visual inspection, for instance, you know, but it's or did they come and look at where the charger voltage was? All that sort of stuff. You mentioned the, the charger voltage. The battery is only charged as good as the battery charger is. All too often, people make the mistake of uh, setting the charge voltage at the battery charger. They ignore the potential voltage drop between the battery charger and the battery. So the charge voltage should be set measuring the battery at the battery terminals, not at the charger output. But a couple of other important things about the charger as well is it needs to be properly filtered and needs to be properly regulated. Because if it's not uh, properly filtered, you're going to inject noise upon that battery. Uh, if it's not properly regulated, you're going to be varying the charger voltage all the time. Also, the fact that uh, the fact that the uh, charger could deteriorate over time and consequently very important to maintain that uh, battery charge voltage, but not only maintain the battery charge voltage, but also look at the ripple and the ripple current that may be injected upon that battery. I oh, know you're touching you're touching another subject now is the uh, the failure of part of our standby power systems, mainly called UPS, uh, that I was, the I was manufacturers thinking, was, will not accept that they are producing ripple and noise on the battery. I, I and was it has no effect on them. I was leading you on there, George. Of course you were. Yeah. So tell us all about problems with UPSs and batteries. And I'm sure uh, our guest speaker later will have something to say about that. Well, it, it, it's very simple. The UPS industry uh, has got one purpose in life. It's to A, sell UPSs, make them as cheaply as possible, and sell as many as possible. And, you know, it's the noise level that their chargers produce, okay? Because we've got to remember is that the only way you going to filter the noise out is by putting capacitance in there and uh, if you have a brand new battery uh, they can meet meet their noise levels by measuring it both on the charger and the reflected noise from the inverter onto the battery they can measure it because the battery is producing uh, the capacitance that help filter it however the one thing the first thing to fail on the battery is effectively that level of capacitance that's in there as the battery starts to age and the point that's not always realized is that the level of noise that's on there, that ripple that's on there, in fact, is actually causing the battery itself to heat up. And, you know, as, as you and I well know that, I say you and I well know, and I, but a lot of people don't realize is that you simply have to increase the ambient temperature around a battery by 10 degrees from the nominal 25 degrees C, and I'll use C because it's easier, uh, and you will half the life of that battery. So if you start, you know, you're talking about that's the ambient. So if you start putting a heavy ripple on that battery and even increasing it by a couple of degrees for every cell, you are aging that battery at a much faster rate. You're you're 100% correct. And Wow. uh, Agreement. And I'm I'm glad you said that, you know, reflected noise from the inverter because that's a problem that's often overlooked. Now, the battery is a filter. Back in the old days, my telecom days, uh, there was a kind of a standard that said uh, that the, if the battery was a certain size, then the charger didn't really need all that much filtering because if you're right, the battery would act as a filter. But that was large telecom battery. We're talking 1,600 ampere hours, 2,000 ampere hours. UPSs use much smaller batteries, and they have. Uh, you certainly don't have much of a filtering effect. But anyway, I'd like to change it a little bit 
uh, changed a little bit now because we're always beating up on UPS manufacturers. And having worked for one, I can understand some of the problem. But let's look at what happens when you don't charge a battery properly. So we'll look at overcharging. Most of the things I find out is that batteries are being undercharged, not really overcharged. But overcharging can have a much more devastating effect. When you overcharge a battery, you're shoving in more current than the battery essentially can handle. And current causes heat. So uh, with larger flooded batteries, vented lead-acid batteries, that's not really a, too much of a problem because the two effects of the heat, uh, one, the batteries can be easily convection-cooled, the space around the batteries, and heating also causes the, causes the a greater loss of electrolyte. And this can be compensated by filling, topping it up with water every now and again. With five regulated lead-acid batteries, that does not happen. Depending on the te- technology, there's two main technologies, as you know. One's uh, uh, absorbed electrolyte, uh, and the other's gelled. With absorbed electrolyte batteries, the, where the electrolyte is absorbed into the uh, microporous separators, not always is it in contact with the case of the battery. So if you're overcharging the battery, you're producing heat, and that heat is not easily convection cool. And it's made even worse by the fact that we beat up on the UPS guys again. They, they cram the batteries into a cabinet with virtually no ventilation around that battery. So when the battery heats up, it, produce, it produces heat. And what happens when the battery produces heat? It draws more current, and it goes into a vicious circle. And that circle is known as thermal runaway. And the worst, the least that can happen is that the battery starts swelling, but it also gives off oxygen and hydrogen that escape through the pressure relief valve. That cannot be replenished. So just to give you one example, a 20%, uh, roughly 20% loss of electrolyte in that battery, you're halving the battery capacity. So I've talked a little bit about that. I'll come back and talk about undercharging. But would you like to comment on anything regards overcharging, George? And you've seen it all. No, I, I, you said you believe that probably in, in this country we undercharge more than overcharging. That's the one area I will disagree with you. I think that particularly on uh, valve-regulated cells, we tend to overcharge. Now, in part, that may well be just what you're talking about. The fact is that the uh, the batteries themselves are being located in areas where they can't. They, they're they're running warmer because of the ambient, just because of the way they're assembled. No, no ventilation. No, no cooling. And, you know, we we have another problem with that in the sense that with some of the latest ASHRAE rules that's allowed the data center temperatures to be raised. I, I realize that the big, big ones always have separate battery rooms, but the um, a lot of the, the smaller, if you have a, an in-company data center, the UPS may well be at the end of the data center. I've been to many locations that look just like that. And if they then increase the te- operating temperature in the, uh, the data center, to, to meet the ASHRAE because everybody loves it, you know, saves energy on the cooling. And lo and behold, we are now running that battery at way above what it should be. And everybody's questioning why it's losing, uh, you know, but we're overcharging it, basically. It's, uh, it's, it's losing because of the, the fact that we're running at a higher temperature. It's also losing because it's probably venting more because of the overcharge. Just a thought. This is it about time we brought our guest in to... Uh, just let me say one other thing, George. Okay, sure. Uh, I, I disagree with you on the overcharging. Uh, only from the fact that uh, I'm talking now about valve regular lead-acid batteries. Because, as I said previously, equipment the, the norm used to be 2.25 volts per cell. But the manufacturers are increasing the electrolyte-specific gravity, which requires a higher voltage. And usually that UPS output voltage or the DC rectifier output voltage is not adjusted up. That's why I see a lot of undercharging these days. And undercharging, what's the problem there? Undercharging, you're going to uh, eventually sulfate the plates because when the batteries discharge, chemical reaction is the the sulfur from the sulfuric acid is absorbed into the plates. And in order to get that battery back to normal, you have to drive that 
sulfate out of the battery back into the electrolyte. And if you're not charging that battery sufficiently, you're not going to do that. So over time, that battery is going to get uh, a little bit sulfated. Uh, one thing we omitted to, to say is that, you know, there's different chemistries. And what I've talked about is mainly with the lead calcium chemistry. Lead antimony is a little bit different. Lead selenium is a little bit different. So anyway, and even gel cells are a little bit different. But anyway, uh, as you said, let's bring our guest in. Uh, would, would you want to introduce Ed there? Well, I'll let George? you do. You, you've actually known him longer than I have. So uh, I, I don't know how, probably 30 odd years, Ed. We go back to uh, API, Alberta That's right. API. That's right. Correct. And a uh, good friend of uh, Ed's is another Ed, Ed Rafter, Ed Rafter and I. Very good friends. And we, we kind of grew up in this industry together. So, and I, you know, I, I know that you guys run a great shop and still do. So maybe, Ed, you can tell us just a, very briefly about what you do. Okay. Thanks, guys. Uh, appreciate the time this morning and thanks for having me on. The, uh, and, and thanks for the kind introduction there. Uh, I, I want to start by saying uh, I owe a great debt of gratitude to Ed Rafter. Uh, he's been my mentor in this business and he brought me on board in 2000. And that was in the formation of Albert Power. And it was a joint venture between uh, the Alberts and and Ed Rafter to install their battery monitoring system. So I, I owe a great debt of gratitude or a great deal of blame to, to Ed. Uh, also, uh, even though Glenn was kind of the brains behind the engineering and the patents and the other types of things at Albert, um, Derek took a lot of time, Derek, his brother, Albert, uh, took a lot of time to help me understand the business. And so, uh, that that's where I cut my teeth and got my start. And I believe I met you, Alan, in Montreal, I believe was the first time that uh, I attended the IEEE meetings and, and met you there. So anyway, uh, uh, here we are 22 years later and, and, uh, still in the, still in the, in the battery game. I, I do want to, uh, thank you guys. I, I recently had my 60th birthday. So when I'm talking with folks, uh, personally and professionally, it's rare that I'm the youngster in the room. So Thank you very much. <laughs> I also, uh, I might throw in that uh, I'm the only one that either has or doesn't have an accent. So I don't know which of those is true. But Well, but, uh, you, you also noticed that George and I were kind of morphing into Ed Rafter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That is great. Uh, okay. So anyway, you guys uh, brought me off about battery charging, but thank you. And so... Um, I have a, quite a bit more experience uh, in our industry with battery monitoring, and that's been my lane uh, in this, yeah, in this industry. But you know, battery charging is just so it's just so important and part and parcel of everything that we do with the with the batteries. Uh, I'll, I'll agree with uh, just about everything that you guys have have uh, uh, said, and and. Alan, even though you mentioned that there's differences between lead antimony and lead selenium and these others, there's a lot more similarities than there are differences. There are a few subtle differences, but uh, uh, at, at any rate, the you know Ed Ed helped keep things uh, battery related relatively simple for me. And the battery itself, as it's manufactured and leaves the uh, leaves the factory, it's only ever going to be in two states after that. It's always going to be in discharge or it's always going to be in charge. There is no other state, even when it's in the, uh, in the truck, it's a small self-discharge that's happening. So when, Alan, when you say that, you know, charging is near and dear to your heart, well, my goodness, in, in standby applications, the float applications, that type of thing, you know, we're talking about 99% of the battery's life. So uh, it is, you know, it is ultimately important. We also, uh, I like to use the term optimizing, uh, optimizing battery life. And so trying to balance that whole idea of capacity and service life and uh, that type of thing. Also with the, you know, trying to have a product that is, will last as long as possible for the, uh, for the benefit of the, of the end user. So in that goal of optimizing the battery life, uh, charging is the very first and most important, uh, you know, in a piece of that. George, 
referred to it several ways, but in the very beginning, the instruction manuals, uh, uh, Enersys, I work with Enersys now, and we do a, a really uh, good job of describing exactly what types of charging, um, whether it's the freshening charge that you mentioned now, uh, if they've been in storage for a while, or the initial charge when we're initially putting them in service. Um, it's usually in graphic form, but uh, at, at any rate, it's a uh, and it, and it varies by battery model number, battery type, um, like a specific gravity. There's there's a, there's a variety of um, of differences there. So it's just so important uh, at the start of the battery life uh, to get that charge process uh, started correctly and give the battery a fair chance to uh, to have an optimized uh, service life. One of the pet things for me and and George is uh, uh, further along in this than I am. But again, it's something that Ed Ed and I worked on quite a long time was um, training of technicians, um, even the IEEE document, the 1657, and uh, and developing curriculum around that to train battery technicians. Uh, It's it's really important. And I feel sometimes uh, within my organization, we have over 10,000 people. It's a huge organization. And we're, we're, we seem to constantly be fighting, oh, well, are we making money this quarter? What about this month or that, that kind of thing? And this education process, it requires time. It, it, it literally, you know, would be, you know, even if a guy went through the classroom process and the, uh, had a requisite OJT uh, following that, you know, it might be uh, between a year and in two years before they really are are able to have the kind of knowledge that your guys are talking about um, as far as you know how to install it, how to charge it, how all, all these uh, and and how to do it safely, uh, et cetera. And in our profit driven world, we uh, it's it's easy to lose sight of hey, we don't have time to take two years to get a guy that can be an expert in all areas. We need to get batteries installed tomorrow. So I'm not trying to justify it. I'm just trying to say it is a constant battle or a constant, uh, it's a song that I have to sing over and over and over again. We've got to get our guys trained. And I and I really appreciate not only the start of that with Ed Rafter, but Intersys itself, who I work for today, is uh, uh, we spend a lot of time and resources uh, in in training and giving our technicians the the best possible best possible chance of 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 pulling this this off. One of the one of the things I wanted to mention, Al, you were talking, you went quite a while about uh, talking about the chargers, the ripple effect, et cetera. I also want to throw in that the temperature compensation is is really uh, important for in the in the charging you know process because. Remember, there's lots of different applications, and we've talked quite a bit about uh, UPS batteries, and that's where I grew up was in the data center and UPS environment. But there are lots of other applications for batteries, and those aren't nearly as climate controlled and and as uh, uh, as uh, you know spotless clean as uh, a lot of data center battery rooms. So the temperature compensation and having the technician understand how to set up the temperature conversation and uh you know that that sort of thing is uh, is also quite important you mentioned the thermal runaway and that's one of the neater features that's happened over the last uh, 10 years or so in the battery monitoring end of things is um because we see so many flooded battery strings now being replaced by cabinetized valve regulated batteries and as you said you know we're cramming them into smaller and smaller cabinets and less and less uh, uh, you know, space and and that kind of thing. So that vicious cycle of the heat and the higher resistance and more current, which is more heat, higher resistance, more current, it lends itself in that valve regulated world to a failure mode that can allow thermal runaway to happen so much faster than these large flooded cells. Because you know, in one aspect, you just have you know, if you've got a uh, plates and and all this electrolyte there and you know o- open electrolyte you've got a built-in heat sink so it takes much longer for the t- uh, for the problem to develop that way but um, in the battery monitoring world many jurisdictions and a, and a few of the manufacturers have made it a uh, standard operating procedure now to be able to 
sense that and use an algorithm that talks about the increased float current, the increase in temperature over time. So you're not shutting on any, you're not getting any sort of spurious shutoff. But um, uh, if it meets that criteria long enough that you can actually open up that battery breaker and stop the uh, stop the issue, because uh, with thermal runaway, uh, other than as far as I know, um, other than the lithium ion, as soon as you stop the source for current, you stop the problem from getting worse. Now, that doesn't mean that <laughs> stuff still isn't on fire or whatever, but uh, at least you're not contributing to the problem anymore. Ed, if, if I may interrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned temperature compensation. Very, very important in, in my mind. And uh, each manufacturer will give you a temperature compensation figure for their for their batteries. Usually, about something about around about uh, 1.7 millivolts per degree Fahrenheit or three millivolts per degree C. But uh, question I often get asked, and I can understand why. I won't tell you what my answer usually is, but when you employ temperature compensation, you're obviously relying on a temperature probe within the battery somewhere. Well, that's, where's the best place to place that probe? Well, I, again, you know, it, it depends on it, it depends on a variety of things. But uh, again, if you're just if you just have a probe in the ambient air, boy, that's a, there's a lot of uh, degree yeah. for room for change there. Uh, if you have it on the casing or the cover or that kind of thing it, it makes a big difference whether it's about regulated cell etc i i suppose if uh if i had the one place that i wanted to put it and i was talking about that uh, cabinetized valve regulated battery i would want to have it on the negative post but but that's um that's that's me that was my answer right well absolutely i i have to agree except i i have to say that if you on if you have a vented cell if you can uh if you can find a way to support the uh, the sensor on the actual body of the jar, you're then sets, you're actually sensing electrolyte temperature then rather than that. So uh, that also works. The biggest problem you have is attaching a, a sensor to the jar so that it be, it stays adhere or adheres properly. We know the challenges of uh, adhering anything to plastic jars. Uh, I've lived. I've lived through that with uh, yeah. uh, level sensors, but it, it, it's an important part of it. You know, you you have the choice between the two. The the, the other thing is that uh, you know, with a here we go UPS again, with uh, UPS with has a typically depending on the size, but two hundred and forty volt, four hundred and eighty volt battery. There's a lot of batteries a unit, so you know, if you're placing it. Here's the, the hang up I have, Ed. And, you know, you, you, you're right in what you said, but if I place it on the negative most post of that battery, uh, that battery number 240 could be in a position that's well ventilated. <laughs> right, right. So I usually say, well, bury, bury it somewhere in the middle of the battery <laughs> and uh, on right. the negative, a negative post there. That's, yeah. that's one of the. One of the problems there, but uh, yeah, I, I'm um, glad to I'm glad to see we, we both think alike. It right, and on the uh, in in monitoring uh, specifically when it comes to the temperature, um, many times we're working with um, three tier racks uh, that type of thing, and there's a big difference between the temperature uh, on the cell on the very top rack on on the very bottom rack. So most of the time on a 240 cell string, it'll come with uh, a one or two probes. If it's only one, then we'll just, like you said, Eric, uh, uh, Alan, we'll, we'll bury it right in the middle there. But we try to get a representative sample when we're talking about the ambient conditions, because that's, that's just the best we can do. With, uh, with your experience in, in uh, UPS, as Ed, uh, and your experience in, in battery monitoring, let's, we're talking about charging here. I don't want to go into dissertation about temperature compensation and things like that, but we're talking about battery charging. Charge current. At a, a BatCon, or several years ago, Ed, you might have even been there. Uh, I, I asked uh, the panel of experts, or the panel of so-called experts, I call them. <laughs> and most of most of my friends of mine. But uh, I asked them if you could only measure two things on a battery, what would it be? And almost unanimously, they said we'd measure charge current and temperature. So, to me, the 
charge current is a very, very important part of that charging process. And I don't know about you, but I used to use a figure that if the charge current uh, uh, increased uh, by a factor of three, in other words, three times what you would expect or what you would calculate uh, based on a figure of usually about something like one milliamp per ampere hour for that battery. If it charged, if it increased by that much, you were in serious trouble. Have you come across that, Ed, in your monitoring experience? Right, and and I haven't necessarily used that factor of three, but but I would uh, strongly agree that the float current or the charge current uh, in that UPS, well, in any application, but in in UPS uh, you asked about, it's vital. It, it's uh, it's such a great piece of the puzzle if you're trying to figure out, you know, what is changing with the battery or what is wrong with the battery, especially the issues with resistance or heat or, or other, other uh, uh, issues like that, because the only way for the charger or the rectifier to overcome that is to put more current through there, which is, you know, more float current, which is then again, you know, gets you a, a higher impedance, which are a higher resistance, which causes more heat, which you know, you get to this vicious cycle, but it is one of the basic indicators of the status of health of that battery system, especially if you can trend it over time. I mean, if you can know what it was in the very beginning and, and what it was two years later and what it was four years later, you can determine quite a bit about um, the effect of age and the effect of uh, ability, uh, capacity in that battery by uh, the relatively subtle differences in the float current. Yeah, well, what I should have I should have qualified by saying, if the current increases by a factor, of I used to figure three, right. everything else stays the same. In other words, the temperature stays the same. Then you're looking at problems. Right. But you mentioned trending, and and just one of George's. Oh boy, he's probably spent more time trending <laughs> than, he, than, than he has drinking. So, uh, <laughs> oh, that's saying something. Yeah. So, uh, George, uh, would you like to comment on that or? Or talk to Ed about that trending. I, you know, I, I totally agree with Ed one hundred percent on that. It's the, the, the you, you know, I have this uh, passionate thing about. I hate limit alarms because people believe in them absolutely implicitly, and they don't tell us anything other than the fact that by the time it gets to the limit, it's probably failed anyway. And that's not the objective. You're with battery monitoring. You're trying to find out if there's something failing and correct it before it happens. So you know. Trending and analyzing change is probably the biggest thing. But the, the, you hit upon something else, Alan, that comes back to this correct charging, is that you have to understand what the charge voltage is in order to make sense of the change in trend. And, you know, it, it's people that, to me, one of the things is that people will complain about the chargers going up and down, but they never look at the ambient temperature and realize that the charge has actually been temperature compensated and it's doing its job correctly, you know, or they don't translate that change in, in voltage and change in temperature to a change in the ohmic value because they will all change. So it's that part of it. But uh, I want to come back to something we talked about a little bit earlier, and it's something that Ed's probably very aware of now, is this problem of where do we measure the charging voltage? And uh, we have a challenge with uh, the PRC005. When the, when the team put it together, one of the values that they stipulated you measured was the charger output voltage. And I, it's, I probably get every, every class I ever do and phone calls as well is, well, hold on, you, your monitor doesn't comply with 005 because it doesn't measure the charger output voltage. It doesn't have a lead that goes to the charger to measure the output voltage. And I have to go into this long dissertation about the fact is that you measure it at the battery right. because it's the battery voltage that matters. It's the, That's what's going to maintain the light. The rest of the equipment on the site is designed to operate from a fully charged battery to a fully discharged battery. It doesn't give a damn, to be honest, about a few millivolts here and there, but the battery does. So it's important that you measure the charge output voltage at the battery and don't ever believe in the meter in the charger. 
because it probably isn't accurate. And if you're talking about assessing manufacturers' um, UPSs, that the same day I was talking to this young lady, service tech, about the fact that she was overcharging it, she fixed it. She went and recalibrated the meter and the reading on this display. Didn't do anything else, just turned the knob. <laughs> so, you know, you, you cannot believe what it says. It's, 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 it's a major problem we have. But charging, I think, is, is this key element to try and get life. But it's understanding all the effects it has on the battery as well. Do you agree, Ed? Yes. You've actually helped me with this, but the that PRC 005 document, while the end user has to comply with it, and where we interface with it is in the battery uh, end of it, boy, it was not necessarily written by battery experts or folks who are in the know in that particular arena. PRC 005 is a compromise document, and it was... Uh, uh, they got the IEEE involved too late, Ed. Yeah. Uh, the document that was ready in, I think, 002 uh, revision. And uh, we tried to do something about it, but uh, we were up against uh, people who knew they had to do something. They knew they had to produce a document, but they were also had price constraints. A lot of financial engineering went into that document. And just to give a little plug, uh, we have in the Eagle Eye. University, I believe it was, uh, oh, we had a published article in uh, Transmission and Distribution that I wrote about the difference between IEEE battery requirements and PRC 005 battery requirements. So uh, anybody's listening to this, they contact uh, Eagle Eye, they can give you a copy of that document. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, the getting back on the charging, the charging path here. I know you've already mentioned the fact that we need to educate people, but uh, you know the IEEE does have documents that you know talk about charging. Both the uh, 1188 and 450 have very good information about charging, very good information about temperature compensation, uh, very good information about ohmic measurements. You know, ohmic measurements uh, do a lot to tell you the, the health of the battery, including how it's been charged. But uh, they uh, also they have uh, appendixes. I know one in particular uh, I'm familiar with because I wrote it, but it's to do with ripple effect on batteries. So I'm telling our audience here, contact Eagle Eye uh, or even contact Ed Rogers there at uh, Enersys, which in my opinion is a great company, even though I, I knew the president or CF, CEO, uh, David, mm -hmm. uh, way back but it was just a regular battery guy. Right. Bat right. Battery sales guy, you know? Yep, yep. <laughs> so, so anyway, but uh, I don't know if uh, David wants to wind it up shortly here. I don't get the uh, wind-up signal, so we'll just we'll continue on. Uh, can talking. I move us forward a little bit, Alan, just, out, mm -hmm. just to see what we're talking by, about? By, by all means. Charge charging in general. is, And this is something I'm getting involved in uh, with some of the new battery technologies, especially the... Uh, the zinc-based battery technologies that uh, we're now, we've now got a, a stand, we're working on a, a recommended practice for that now within the IEEE. And uh, the fact that we're going to have to relook at how the chargers themselves are behaving, that the charger is probably going to have to become more intelligent to work with the battery. Because uh, one of the things I've discovered is that, uh, you know, having been talking about charging of nickel-cadmium batteries for all this time, I now discover that, in fact, we are actually charging the nickel-cadmium battery totally wrong, that it does not want to stay at 100% charge all the time. It does not like being on float. It should, in fact, be it's much happier if it sits at about 90 to 95% state of charge. And the same is going to apply to all the new zinc-based uh, technologies as well. They, don't, they do not like and neither does lithium. Lithium, in fact, is much happier at 90% state of charge and is far less dangerous. So I know there is some work already been done on the lithium side where there are some of the charger manufacturers actually now have developed uh, programs that allow the effectively 
take the information from the battery management system in the chart in the in the battery and help do the adjustment. And that was something that was talked about at one of the uh, BICON conferences a number of years ago. Was um, Jim McDowell from SAF talked about the idea of the 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 you know at the present moment in order to try and keep all the lithium cells balanced, they are using balancing techniques. But sometimes it would be easier to balance it if you simply took the charge voltage down slightly or to go off charge for a very short period of time. And we need to get that level of interaction together. So maybe we're actually going to be talking about in the next 10 years, new generations of the chargers out there that we may may now be able to write even more uh, interesting factors into it. You know, George, George, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because I have a question I want to ask Ed, and that's you're t- you know you're talking about partial state of charge. Way back in the day, I think it was Best UPS at the time come out with this thing where they charge the battery to hundred percent, then switch the charger off, let the charger mm-hmm. decay to a certain fixed voltage, and then switch the charger back on again. I find personally that extended battery life. But uh, since then, uh, some manufacturers have come up with uh, what they call uh, battery management systems in which, say, one major manufacturer, uh, I don't know if I should mention the name or not, but they have this installed on UPSs where they uh, essentially, well, that's essentially what they do. They charge the battery up and they switch the charger up. Uh, it's a big problem for maintenance because you don't actually know where the state of charge is right. when you come to maintain that battery. But what do you, what do you think of that whole thing, Ed? Does it extend well, battery life? That has not been my experience, but I also don't, I'm not familiar with the best product that you were talking about. The, where I've run into that uh, several times is, uh, like you said, Alan, with maintenance. And remember, I'm in the kind of the battery monitoring world. So it's given us fits and starts on voltage alarms and other, and all kinds of other uh, issues where the end user is saying, wow, this, this thing doesn't work or the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm having all kinds of trouble here. And it's because the the um, the rectifier is literally being uh, shut off at times, and it's a uh, primarily at least. And I'll say Eaton. That's the box I'm uh, before that. It was uh, I think Powerware, but anyway, the the box I'm familiar with. It was this trying to reduce the overall cost or the overall energy usage within the data center. And one way they thought they could uh, help there was. Hey, well, well, what if we just turn the, the charger off to the battery for uh, you know some prescribed period of time? But uh, so I, I did not see that it extended battery life, and in my lane, if you will, it it really only gave us problems. And in many cases, uh, we just got permission from the manufacturer. Let's disable that function, um, and it and it made it a, a much easier for the for the end user and and us maintainers afterward. I would question the uh, the amount of energy it saves. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I know every little bit counts, but that that's uh, that's a little, little bit right. Uh, right. And it's interesting, uh, if memory serves me right, that only one battery manufacturer signed on to that, uh, which which tells you something. Yeah. So, uh, just to, just to make a point here, just to because it comes back to the idea of changing charging patterns is that if you remember we had a talk a couple of backgrounds uh, was a paper about uh, a trial that was done where they did take the battery off a charge but they didn't allow it to go below open circuit voltage so the actual electrochemical reaction inside the cell never 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 started which is the problem you had with the they were taking it off and dropping it down, way down in voltage. But the, on, this, on that experiment, apparently it did start to show the potential for improving the life of the battery. Uh, if I remember right, it was uh, it was done out at US West while uh, Curtis was still there. And um, they, they, they basically took it down. So you, you were actually putting the battery, it was almost like a post-charging version on the battery. You were taking it off, allowing it to drop. You're basically allowing the CDL, the actual capacitance within the battery to discharge. And once it it has discharged, and the moment you've got to that open circuit voltage, you put it on again. So you never actually activated the chemical reaction that was taking place. 
That was the idea. And he, at that point, he said he felt that it could extend life. But you're now talking about a, uh, an intelligent charger to do it. It's so so that's, that's why I wanted to bring it up, because I think that we could probably talk about this if we were still well enabled in about three years' time. We might be talking about something different from a charging perspective. Yeah, I'm interested. God help us if we are. I'm interested, um, George, you mentioned that um, this uh, partial state of charge or being charged to 90% with the lithium products or the zinc products or that family of chemistries. You know, it's just quite different from what we we know in lead acid. And and boy, when we're having when we're having some you know float issues or that kind of thing, we talk about equalized charge and kind of overcharging everything and bringing it all and letting it settle back down to uh, to float. So I'll be interested to see what the what the dynamics are involved with this. Um, you know, literally allowing it to be at a at a lower state of charge. It's going to be fascinating. I, the, the one of the reasons I got interested in it is that, that you, if you ever hear any of our other podcasts, you realize that Alan and I are not lithium fans in any way, shape, or form. I, in part, just because of the fact is that we don't actually have lithium within the US. So we, we do, we're not controlling. We, we're, we're putting too much of our effort into using material and, and batteries that are coming from elsewhere in the world, and that's not a good choice at the present moment. But um, the, uh, the 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 nickel and the zinc uh, and the zinc manganese, uh, which is the one of the other technologies, is they are all they, these are materials that are readily available any place, and they are safe. They they don't catch fire. They don't do them. They they'll have their problems. That you know, let's not uh, sugarcoat this in any way, shape, or form. They have a long way to go. Because as we know, look how long it took us to get the uh, VRLA cell sorted out. Right. You know, it was years and years, and we lived through it, so we know all about it. So I, I'm not saying it's going to happen immediately, but it's 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 a chemical process that I think has interest, and it's it's not as if it's brand new. You know, we've known the the the, the use of zinc and manganese and and nickel. They've been available almost since the start of battery technology, yeah. But they just they had chemical things that were that made them difficult to use, and some of that's been overcome now. So they, I, I agree with what Ed said. You know, very difficult to apply to uh, lead acid technology uh, because, and I, I can see a great problem with the other you know evolving chemistries because how do you measure a battery state of charge? You know. Uh, the way we do it is we look at the float current. And, uh, you know, as that float current tapers off, you know, the battery's getting further charged. But each battery's, each battery cell is different, the different resistance. Therefore, the, you know, the float current's going to be slightly different. So I would question on, you know, how, how do you determine uh, what the state of charge is if, if you're only charging it to 90, 95% state of charge? So maybe Ed would have comment on that. I don't know. I, I'll, I'll just concur with you, Alan. I, I don't know. It, it seems like a kind of a built-in problem. I I don't know how we would quantify because it, it just doesn't translate to the, the lead acid world to, to me. I think that's the problem, though, Ed, to be honest, is it's this we and and you know, all of us are of the older generation, so we, we are so used to doing it the old way. Uh, in this case, I think we have to rethink it. That's one of the reasons I got involved with it uh, I, I, into the, that panel because um, it fascinates me. Because it, it's, I, I believe there are we can we can get around it, but maybe maybe some of the uh, the old heads are still better because we uh, we can see the problems that come from an operational point of view and how do we answer that and then we. One of the one of the biggest things I hear about the people that are using lithium, uh, especially within the utility industry, is this ability to not actually know what the state of charge are or how the battery is. The battery decides when it's bad and it tells them. And that's not what they're looking for. It's not what they're used to. I know you mentioned rethinking things, George. You know, I find myself having to rethink things quite a lot today. Somebody once remarked about Alan knows everything about batteries. He just can't remember it all. <laughs> I know you're a lot younger than us, Ed, but uh, 
Now, you, you got it coming to you as well, buddy. <laughs> well, thanks. And uh, uh, it's been a it's been a great morning. I'm so uh, thrilled to to be here and just to to uh, uh, catch up with you guys and have a very interesting topic all uh, related to battery charging. Yeah, I just want to briefly briefly mention uh, your your mentor Ed Rafter. Mm-hmm. Ed uh, was very instrumental in producing a IEEE document on uh, battery technician training. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, and. Uh, Never really got to fruition in my in my opinion. Right. But but there there is a lot of he put a lot of work into it. Yes. And uh, I think it's something that needs to be implemented. I, I know jo- George uses it on his, on some of his uh, training courses, but uh, maybe that's something we need to look at, Ed, uh, as as a tri- mm-hmm. tribute to Ed Rafter. I, I agree wholeheartedly, and and uh, much of the curriculum that we developed, not only for training our own technicians at API and Summit Power, but uh, also we package that uh, to, you know, to, for uh, training for end users and uh, that type of thing. We never got to the place where I feel like Eagle Eye University is now where it could be, you know, let's say a, a, a legitimate revenue source or, or that type of thing. Even though that's not necessarily the, the end driver, what we're, what we're trying to do is get everybody to understand what, what we're doing and have fully trained technicians, et cetera. But uh, um, so I know that he is pleased that uh, some of the legacy that he is carrying on, even though he's a electrical engineer by trade, his passion was always in the batteries and in that, and in that UPS environment and um, just his human interest and kindness uh, translated into really putting a lot of effort and energy into battery. Well, I will step in and do a little plug for Eagle Eye University here because uh, at this moment we are using, I took what Ed did and so, uh, he added it to the appendix within uh, 1657, as you know. Mm-hmm. And I actually had an, an earlier version of it that Ed had given me, so I was able to tie the two together. And we are at the present moment working on with my other colleague, my other, other instructor at Eagle Eye University, and putting together a course that is absolutely follows that curriculum. The idea being that we want to be in a position eventually to be able to certify in accordance with 1657. There are, there's lots of questions go on, even internally, about, well, can we do that? You know, doesn't this, I, doesn't IEEE have to do it? But my understanding is from Curtis, who actually chaired that committee, is that no, IEEE did not want to get involved in any form of certification. It was up to the actual facility that was going to do the training to do it. So that's my objective at the present moment within Eagle Eye University. I want uh, to you know work with Rod, but get this courses produced so that we can actually do it because they're they're actually at quite a, quite a basic level. They, they don't go into a lot of the stuff that we're already doing in some of our other courses because they're the more the special knowledge type courses that some of the stuff I'm doing. Uh, but the idea is to be able to go and start talking to the people like the utilities and saying, you need to get the people that are working on batteries at this level from a safety point of view, if nothing else, and understand what they're doing. So uh, so we are. You're, you're The work that Ed and you did is not lost. We are carrying it on, and I'm proud to be able to carry it on. Awesome. Thanks for remembering that. Yeah. The, the other thing is that, uh, you know, since we, this podcast was all about charging, although we did deviate it often tangents, as I often do, but uh, I'd like to remind the folks out there that Eagle Eye does have a white paper, and it's based on a paper, a peer review paper that I Presented at BatCon several years ago, and I think the title was uh, you know, "Are you charging your batteries properly?" And uh, I'm quite proud of that because several companies are now using it as a source document. But uh, awesome. it's available from Eagle Eye, so just contact Eagle Eye and mm-hmm. ask them for uh, Alan's uh, battery charging paper. And I, I believe, Dave, I, I believe we, we we have a or we did a. Uh, a seminar on that as well, what you call it, not a 
A webinar. Uh, yeah. You web, did a, a webinar, yeah, yeah. We've got that on the website as well. So yeah. Awesome uh, conversation today, guys. Any other final thoughts on the, the charging topic, George or Ed? No, I, I think we covered it pretty well, to be honest. Agreed. Great. Well, thanks for joining us. I'd be really appreciated. And uh, anytime you can get collective group of uh, guys with industry experience of uh, probably over a hundred years, you're probably going to learn something. Mm-hmm. So I hope right. I hope everyone learned a little bit today. I, I know I did. You got the hundred year flood. <laughs> probably uh, over a hundred yeah. years, but. I, I personally want to thank Ed for coming on. All right. Thanks, yeah. folks. Yeah. All, right, All right. Thanks, guys. You. Really appreciate Thank it. Guys, you're welcome. Okay. You're welcome. Thanks, everyone. Bye. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.